hello. Welcome to I Love Rock and Roll. I'm Ken And Kranz. I am Chip Chantry. Well, thanks for getting that out of the way. <laughs> hey, I'm uh, I'm excited. You know who we, I mean, I know that you know who we have with us here today. I don't know. I'm like priming you up like we weren't all just chatting off air. You're prining me up? Come on, oh. Ken. Good night, everybody. Good night. Uh, take two. Please, if we could, if you could introduce me and the listeners to our, our very esteemed guest today, I would love it. Our guest today is, um, he is a dear friend of many, many years. Uh, he is a singer, songwriter, lawyer. And uh, he also was nice enough to provide I Love Rock and Roll with our theme music. Welcome Eric Harrison to the show. Eric, thanks so much for doing it. Thanks so much for the amazing music. You're you are our second lawyer musician in a row I know that we've that. interviewed. I, that's that's I a little heard, crazy. I listened to Lily this morning and there, there's a little uh, there's certainly a little bit of overlap on our uh, attitudes, our love of language and. Uh, our overlap of uh, enthusiasm for our vocation and our avocation. So uh, that's a, that's a pretty cool piece. Ken, are you going to law school at any time in the near future? Yeah, that actually, I uh, cat's out of the bag. This is our last episode. Quid pro quo. I actually wrote him a recommendation before, <laughs> before we went on there. It, would, it didn't take very long. Uh. You know, what stinks is like when you're a comedian and you know, it's uh, it's watching younger family members. Like I have a little cousin who in my head just a few years ago, like his mom was still cutting his chicken for him and we were all right. ripping on him because he was like 14 at the time. <laughs> yeah. And uh, now he finished law school and he got a job at a great firm and it's like, oh, you're way more successful than me. It's the worst. Right out it's, the gate. <laughs> I... I I went to high school with a kid and he was just a dick and also just like uh, crazy, uh, just pothead. And there, there are many other drugs in the system, I think. But he moved out west. And then it was right around the time I started stand up comedy. I found out that he got arrested for it was him and th like three other three other guys robbed a bank to get money, I think, for heroin. And he so he obviously had to go to jail for a number of years because he robbed a bank for, I think, heroin. And I just remember snickering and being like, what a fucking loser. You know, <laughs> this he's going to jail. He is now out of jail. He I think he's married and got kids and has like a decent job and has turned his life around. Yeah. And I'm still doing stand up. Yes. comedy. Yeah. He's no. he's blasting off in the space with Elon Musk next week. <laughs> You know, you, you guys totally shot my theory because listening uh, to Lily this morning and, and also taking stock of all of the episodes of this podcast I've listened to, I, I, I wanted to come in with this really positive theory that I feel like as, as we all hit middle age, the bitterness and nastiness and schadenfreude starts to give way to cheering for our colleagues and our former competitors and... Uh, Apparently, I miscalculated. Yeah, oh no, no, I'm just, I'm just very bitter. And no, yeah, the, the bitterness is what fuels. I'm going on pure, uh, pure bitterness now. I'm, I'm no, running. But I, I, but Eric, I, I see what Eric's saying. Like, I think most people go in yes, that direction. Yeah. Well, you're comedian. I just think we're stalled. This is well. Yeah. This is the problem. You're but <laughs> yeah. you're both hardcore music fans, and you both of you, I've heard from you the the sense of wonderment. 
like, you know, you taught me about Jabriath and Spade Cooley and all this crazy shit. And the two of you were like kids discovering something amazing because it fell right within your your zone of enthusiasm. But you're also stand-up comedian. So um, cool. it's a yin and yang. And, uh, you know, in, in, embrace the duality of it. That's that's absolutely fine if it's sustaining. That's that's good. By, by the way, I, I just I'll permit to, it. Right, continue. I just need to describe to the listeners what's happening as well, because I think that is a very profound thing that you just said, Eric. And I just want to explain what's happened, what I'm seeing, because they're both in the studio together right now. Uh, Eric is sitting there with a bottle of water in front of him. And Ken is sitting there with a bottle of water. And I believe a pound oh. and a half of potato salad. No, 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 no. This, you know it, is? It, this is not mine. This oh, okay. this was here when we arrived. No, it's uh, popcorn. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. What would it you just, do it, if that was potato salad and I just started eating from just, it and didn't address it at all? Yeah, you just you just went for the for the salad. It'd be great. <laughs> well, the reason that we're having Eric on today is he just put out uh, an eat an EP. Is that yes. still what they say? It is an EP. He put out an EP of uh, John Prine songs called "Dear John," and um, we thought it would. You and I are now at the point we while we or I don't want to speak for you, but I know for me, like I love doing this show, but I'm over doing like a term papers worth of research every week. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, it's, it's sometimes it's fun, but it does it does wear on you. Yeah. Definitely. So so we were like, hey, we should have Eric come in and just teach us about John Prine. I'm I'm so excited. And I think this is the perfect topic because A, we don't have to do any work, which was great. So thank you, Eric. And B, <laughs> I he's John Prine's been on my radar for the past decade or so. And everybody I knows that knows him loves him. I've heard a couple of songs and I'm like, this is amazing. And I've always just been mad at myself that I haven't dug in deeper. So I'm I'm excited for the big sales pitch. The uh, thing, to, the thing about JP, first of all, my I did not do John Prine songs. That I I would um, I would not I would never allow myself to do a John Prine song because I could not possibly improve on it. I I wrote and recorded five songs that were inspired by John. Oh, okay. and. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> see, I, I see, see how little research I came out the gate saying I did no research. I see I you didn't slide my CD into your CD player. <laughs> Perhaps you couldn't find a CD player. No, it your CD is in my uh, I, my my <laughs> truck still has a CD player and your CD is in it. And I've heard it, but I don't know John Prine's right. music enough to know that those weren't covers. Yeah, those, I, right, yeah I didn't know that either. Yeah, five, that either. five songs I wrote inspired by and about John. So um, I think that's a compliment, Eric, that we both thought that they that they were John Prine songs. So uh, I will you, take you that did him justice. I, I listened. I was like, what's the big deal about this dude's songs? This just sounds... <laughs> the big... <laughs> <laughs> this sounds all right, but what's... <laughs> <laughs> that sounds, sounds like I an feel, Eric Harrison song. Yeah, I feel Jesus, much better. special about John Prine? Yeah, I feel much better about John Prine knowing those weren't covers. <laughs> well, what I... <laughs> What I find, when, I'm kidding. You know, I'm I, kidding. I, I, I've got a thick skin. Don't sweat it. What I find when uh, a friend tries to, uh, what uh, a friend expresses interest in music or an artist that I haven't heard of before, I'm much more interested in the hook that got the friend there rather than hearing the story from 
beginning to end because anybody can Google, go to Wikipedia, whatever. Mm-hmm. But so my my relationship with John Prine began when I was growing up in uh, upper middle class suburbia where Ken Krantz grew up and uh, riding riding my bike to the East Brunswick Public Library. I had a library card that would entitle me to a grand total of seven records per visit. I would never use it on books. And they had a pretty good record collection and a double or triple album counted as one. So I was all over Quadrophenia, One for the Road. Um, I don't remember if Brain Salad Surgery was a double album or if it just had massive gatefolds for the hell of it. But but early on, you know, in the Dylan section, they also had John Prine and other folk artists. And um, the record of his that I got when I was young was called Prime Prine, and it was a sort of early career greatest hits collection. And I thought of him at the time like I thought of Loudon Wainwright and any number of like, you know, what were considered minor league Bob Dylans who were really clever, funny songwriters who occasionally did something profound. But I thought of him as a talented novelty singer. And -hmm. it was not until much later in his career that I did a deep dive. And the way that happened was in 1990 or 1991, he put out The Missing Years, which was then to date his most lavishly produced album. It was produced by Howie Epstein of The Heartbreakers. It sounded Mm -hmm. like a really, really good Tom Petty record, but um, the lyrics were a little twisted. And a philosophy that I've developed um, that I've always had and that I was finally able to put words on in the 90s, I I read um, back when people read print media and cared about music magazines, Musician Magazine was really, really great. And there was an interview, uh, there was an article about John Hyatt, another uh, Roots songwriter I I love. And um, Iggy Pop, of all people, was talking about John Hyatt because he had covered one of his songs. And he said, the thing about Hyatt is he can write these beautiful, pure, blue-eyed soul songs and these other kind of country hits, but there's always a little bit of sickness. And music ain't worth shit if it doesn't have a little bit of sickness. And I and that really stuck with me. And John Prine had a little bit of sickness beneath the exterior. It wasn't necessarily a dark uh, kind of sickness, but it was just a twisted idiosyncratic way of looking at the world. So that album, The Missing Years, totally brought me in because it it was packaged in the manner of the music that I loved at the time. Like 91 had Girlfriend by Matthew Sweet, Interiors by Roseanne Cash, Perspex Island by Robin Hitchcock, all these amazing, what I call singer-songwriter albums, even though not really, it was kind of broader than that. Yeah. And um, so I did a deep dive into John then, and then I went back and listen to the other records, and I realized this dude is like a Midwestern alternative, a Midwestern cousin of Bob Dylan. And then the thing about John Prine is, you know, some artists you listen to them, you can you can surmise who they are from the way they write and the way they sing. And so to fall in love with the John Prine song is to fall in love with John Prine, and, and the man himself did not disappoint. I mean, certainly there's a degree of artifice to to what everybody does, but uh, Prine was just such a, a beautiful soul. And uh, the path that he took, I mean, I don't know how 
how deep you want me to go into his origin story. But um, I, I was telling Ken before we started, like it, it occurred to me recently with the, the love of the show Ted Lasso, mm-hmm. John Prine was a Ted Lasso of his time. Okay. In that this was a dude who, who was so unassuming and so self-effacing. Uh, and so he was such a beta male in a world full of alpha males beating their chests, even in the folk world, which is sometimes looked upon as kind of wimpy or in the country world, you know, it depends, old country, new country. But but John Prine was just a contemplative, sweet, insightful, brilliant dude, but he expressed his brilliance with as few syllables and as few uh, multisyllabic words as possible, not through effort. That's just who the dude was. Mm-hmm. And um, that's why when he – so we lost him to COVID after one week, after, after one week of the shutdown. It was right after we had lost Adam Schlesinger, who's another favorite. Oh, Fountains of Wayne, right? Yeah, another favorite songwriter of mine. And my buddy, Kevin Salem, who I make music with, we were talking pretty much daily about how to keep our sanity. And he said, here's one – here's an assignment for you. Write a John Prine song, which – to me is laughable because he, he is not somebody who can be remotely replicated. But I did my best and then we uh, ultimately we came up with these five songs and I I loved how they came out and they really did have the, the prime spirit. So that's why I, I put out the collection. And I think it's really interesting too that you said and just from this, the, the few songs that I've heard of, of John Prine that I've loved is that sickness that you talked about, like that sickness underneath the shiny or not shiny, but like the beautiful pop upbeat kind of feel. And then just that under like, who else would you say? I was literally, that wasn't something we were talking about. Ken, was it? What? I must've been watching a, a documentary or something where somebody mentioned, Oh, you know what it was? I was, uh, somebody mentioned, uh, Evan Dando from the Lemonheads. Mm-hmm. Kind of, Evan had a little know, bit of sickness. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's just that idea of, I, I love that idea of just like, on the exterior, oh, if, if but if you give it just a little bit of a listen, that darkness or you said that sickness or that – like one of my favorite songs of all time. I, and a part of the reason they said it was so popular was – is Mac the Knife by Bobby Darren. I love Mac the Knife mm-hmm. because it was like this like standard pop song that like the adults in 1959 really liked because it's it kind of – it wasn't rock and roll. It went back. But then it was literally about a brutal murder and, you, you know, so it just it kind of – Shakespearean. Like, so, yeah, it, yeah, really. So it just has that. So I love that those two layers to, to that type of music. Yeah, the other the other dude I similarly fell in love with around that time, the year that John put out Missing Years, Loudon Wainwright III put out the album History, which is his, uh, by far his best album. And I've heard all of them. It is his most coherent album. And, and that, and, and Loudon was another guy I thought of as a really brilliant, weird he kind of skewed a little NPR more than mm-hmm. Prine did. He was a little too self-aware. Um, yeah. But that album, History, kind of opened the floodgates of great music from Loudon Wainwright. And I similarly similarly did a deep dive on him and uh, fell in love with his music as well. And I think it's so hard, too, to have with that sickness that sense of humor, too, that doesn't – it doesn't get corny. It doesn't get – there's a f- fine line to walk, I think, between like – funny musician and then musical comedian you know, like yeah to to, ba- to balance that out like you have somebody like a like henry phillips who i love 
you know, has that same kind, same kind of feel, but it's, it's really hard to, I think, balance that without coming off cheesy or too broad, but to really a, first of all, musically put out something beautiful and then to, to be smart enough to have those lyrics. So here, here's how John Prine got to that point. And I, I will tell some of his origin story because it, it, it's worthy of it. So he, his parents were both from Western Kentucky. They moved to a suburb in Illinois. They were, um, solidly working class people. He, um, he made it through high school. He worked as a mailman for a while and he was drafted. He's, he spent some time overseas as, as a mechanic. He, um, learned guitar. His parents liked rock and roll. They liked old country music. Um, he started learning guitar from one of his older brothers and he loved working as a mailman. He started writing songs just for the hell of it not with any real intention. And the reason why it really fits is because when you listen to the songs on his first record, which could be a greatest hits record, they all tell a tale from the perspective of somebody else who's very different from him. And they do it in a um, in, in, in an extremely empathetic way. I hate that. Uh, the overuse of the word "I'm an empath" now. I, sure. I want to. I want to take that word out and shoot it. But John Prine was Ted Lasso, and he he. I mean, Angel from Montgomery from his first record. He wrote it at 23. It was about a middle-aged woman feeling past her prime. Yes. Um, yeah, I was reading about that song. That's the one Bonnie Raitt covered it, and made others, it famous. Yeah. yeah, but um, I was reading an interview with him. And somebody asked him, you know, because it was so unusual. I mean, it still sort of is. It's it's a little more prevalent now, but it was so unusual for a man to write a song from a woman's point of view. And they asked him, like, why? what made you think you could pull that off? And he was like, because nobody told me the rules. I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to. It was exactly. And uh, I mean, the probably the most affecting of all the songs on that record for me is um, it, it used to be called old people and I'm drawing a blank now. Um, hello in there. Mm-hmm. So hello in there. The, the origin of that song is, is beautiful. John used to deliver mail to a nursing home and as a, as a bright eyed 22, 23 year old, the um, lonely people in there, would treat him like a son. Either they, you know, some of them, he, you know, his view of it was some of these people are, um, maybe they're senile and they think I am their kid. Others are just lonely and they want someone to talk to. And he spent a lot of time with them and he soaked it up. And he wrote this song from the perspective of an, an elderly couple whose kids had flown the coop, who, um, were just telling their tale. It wasn't a pity party, but it was a, a sense of perspective about where they were at at this stage in life. And for him to tell the tale so beautifully, I, when, the first time I heard it, I remembered that on one of the Simon and Garfunkel albums, Paul Simon had done a what he called a song, which was simply called Voices of Old People. And it was literally interviews of older folks in a, a nursing home um, complaining and, and meandering. And that to me is the difference between 
folk music that's exploitative and folk music that embraces its subject with love. Now, I love Paul Simon, but I think that was a serious misfire to to do such a thing. It was probably part of a bigger piece that I might not have absorbed. But um, that's the thing, and that's why people who like John Prine love John Prine, because he crawls inside these characters, and they are not the kind of characters who get celebrated by most songwriters, and he he really brings them to you. He really brings their experience to you, and that's um, that is a major accomplishment for a guy to achieve in his early twenties, just because of how he was brought up and what he soaked up and his innate intelligence. And he kept going and made a lot, a lot of great records. In fact, his last record that won a Grammy, I, I think from 2017. I dare say it was almost as good as his first album in certain ways because there was a, a you know, a, a, a weathered profundity to it. Certain aspects of it were even better. It was just do you, do you think he has over his many decades, did he stay fairly consistent? And, and I'm not talking about like because obviously you said like that la one of the last ones is almost as good. But did he go through different phases really or did he really stick to, you know, that – I, and I don't want to say like it's a bad thing, like the tried and true thing, but like was it his voice throughout or do you think he changed with the times? There was one – John never changed with the times, which I loved about him. But one yeah. – one, there was one little blip in his career that was fascinating. When he so, battle rapped Tupac? <laughs> <laughs> that was the, I was the hologram. That was the John Prine hologram. <laughs> See, I'm not being funny enough. I love – No. no I you, love, this is perfect. I love this him is, so I lo deeply. I – I, I wish I was sitting by a fire right now. Just, this is this is great. This is perfect. So he so the missing year. So John John never quite fit. The first person to champion him, and I do bef before we sign off. I want to tell his big break. I want to tell the story of his big break. But but in terms of how his music developed, his first big champion was was Chris Christopherson. Now Chip, you've talked about loving outlaw country. Yeah, Christopherson sort of on the periphery of that mm -hmm. because. He's like um, – he's a shit kicker, but he's a shit kicker with like – I don't want to get political, but with lefty principles. So he right. doesn't really fit the mold, the initial mold of outlaw country. But Christofferson, the first time he heard John, his jaw hit the ground and he became a champion of him. And like Christofferson, John never quite fit. He had the twang in his voice. He used country instrumentation, but he sure as hell wasn't – Nashville country. He wasn't Texas country. He wasn't anything country. But he also wasn't quite a Dylan-esque singer-songwriter because his his words were simple. He was unpretentious. And mm -hmm. as much as I live for Bob Dylan and he's an archetype, there's still a degree of pretension in the ambition that comes with his music. So John formed his own record label called Oh Boy Records. And um, I know- I saw that. Is that based off of- uh of Buddy Holly or, or no? Probably, yeah. probably. Or there's some, I mean, John's the kind of guy who would explain without, uh, exclaim without irony, oh boy, that's good. Yeah, oh yeah. boy. So that, that makes sense to me. But he, so he was, you know, he was making a living as a cult figure, but then that album, The Missing Years, got some serious money behind it. Tom Petty sang on it. Um, he had some MTV videos. This was the early 90s. And he was he was being packaged in such a way that he might be able to make big money and have big success. So his next album after that 
which was called something like um, uh, Lost Dogs and something Tales. It was it was a big mess. There were there were some there was some overreaching on it where you know this the big hollow echo of the snare drum sound, which is unbearable with hit records of that era. They tried that on a few songs, but the the ascent the essence of John Prine came through and the most one of the re- most remarkable songs of his career is on that album. It's called Lake Marie. It's partially it starts off like that era Tom Petty with a harmonica and a, a beautiful twang, all the Americana instrumentation we love. And then he tells the story about um, children who were found in the woods and a story uh, about them and how a two different lakes were named after them and how this is where his marriage, right, a marriage had begun. And then years later, he had gone somewhere else um, to catch a few fish and to try to save my marriage. And I saw on the news there had been a murder. And he, he in this beautiful country feel-good song, he essentially is talking about a brutal murder that takes place in this very area, Lake Marie. And then he returns to this bright, catchy chorus. And there is so much sickness and so much beauty at the same time to that song because of what he's exploring, the dissolution of his marriage alongside a murder in the woods, alongside the beauty of nature and how these lakes came to be named from a beautiful story. He captures the cycle of life and good and evil. It's like, it's almost biblical, that song. And that's in an album where they were dressing him up with all of these sounds that were trying to get him on the radio and trying to take it to like the stadium level, I think. And ultimately, the album, I think, was a failure, but four or five songs on it were good. And that one is among his greatest. And he just, you know, his personality could not be suppressed. It had to shine through. It's it's interesting that you talk about um, them wanting him to have hits. And, and he was, him and Springsteen kind of came out around the same time. They were part of that. Th- right. This the new Bob Dylan you know, Springsteen found a way around it. Um, But John Prine, I mean, at least I I went and started just reading some old interviews of his in Rolling Stone. And it sounds like that wasn't anything he ever really wanted. You know, like he he chased hits maybe for an album or two and then and then kind of realized that he didn't want them. And he said that um, I read an interview with him where it says, uh, so oh boy records he he's he he signs to atlantic and this is when atlantic has the stones and zeppelin and they are they're all in on the hard rock of the era and nobody was paying attention to john prine he wasn't happy at atlantic he buys himself out of his contract for like 11 grand or something like that ahmed ergen wishes him the best and uh, he forms Oh Boy Records and starts selling his albums through the mail. Like people are sending him checks. And he, he's like like Columbia House before Columbia House. <laughs> Which is perfect for him. Yeah. And um, then it, Oh Boy Records became so successful that Sony offers up a huge sum of money to buy it. And he turns them down. And he says the reason he turned them down was that he's grown comfortable with his obscurity. 
And uh, this is a quote. I like this. He says, in my music, because it wasn't pop music, it didn't get old. It's not like I had one hit or two hits and they froze me in time. So being kind of obscure during the years, it helped me in a way. Very true. Absolutely. I was listening to an interview and I, I forget who. I think it might have been. Oh, maybe somebody from the drive-by truckers or it was somebody, but like a sort of like an alt country, more recent alt country guy. And that was his whole thing. Cause he was like, I, I, I saw these guys come in and out of favor. They'd have two or three good albums. And then they, people move on to the next thing, you know, you know, uh, heavy metal into grunge, into boy bands, into whatever the next big thing is. He's like, if I'm just on the outside of that, I'm never going out of style. Cause there's no style in the first place. Yeah, it totally. So it totally works total, total for JP. By the way, speaking speaking of that, you, you keep talking about. So the missing years is where you came in. Is that right? Where it's you really it, came it's where it? I fell in love with him and did a deep dive on everything that came before it, and then just is, stayed with it. What's a good starting point for people? Is that a, is that a good starting point? It you know if if you have this if if you're allergic to music with a singer with a twang and an acoustic guitar, then mm -hmm. don't start with his first album. Mm -hmm. If you are like a 90s radio rock uh, MTV 120 minutes kind of person, if you came up with that, start with The Missing Years. If you're a Tom Petty fan, start with The Missing Years. Then work your way back. But, it, I mean, if you're remotely interested in Bob Dylan, then start with the first album. Okay. And listen to all of them. I mean, yeah. there's just there, – there were no duds. His album – he did two albums of duets – with female, with different female singers that are all amazing because his uh, his croaky voice and his deadpan approach and the, his vocal limitations juxtaposed with all these different songbirds, just heartbreaking sometimes, hilarious other times. But what another amazing part of the dude's story is he battled cancer, he defeated cancer it um, twice. Yeah, he he went through hell. To the point, uh, like, I think a big chunk of his jaw had to be surgically removed. In his later years, John, John was an extremely handsome young man when he, when he was young. In his later years, he, it, it took some getting used to to see how his face had been transformed by what he'd been through. And he, he I, I mean, I, I hesitate as a guy to use the term, but he, he, he defined a new kind of beauty because he he owned it and his he he said I had to teach myself to sing again and he actually preferred his voice after having fought through the chemotherapy finding it to be closer to what he felt should be coming out of his throat which I, I got a funny quote on that too I got a really funny quote on that uh in in one of these interviews um he noticed a lump in his neck in 96. He thought it was a blood vessel, but it was stage four neck cancer. Jesus. He recovers, but uh, they removed the tumor. They took a chunk of his neck with it. And the doctor says to him, he was like, I don't know how to tell you this, but you may never sing again. And then John Prine goes, well, I guess you haven't heard me sing then. <laughs> <laughs> and that captures. He, yeah, he said he said as long as I can talk, I can sing. And, and then so I, I read this on uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of this <laughs> a deep dive music website called Wikipedia, but <laughs> he he then in 2013 apparently underwent surgery. I'm just reading it off off the site here. He went underwent surgery to remove a cancer from his left lung. So not only did he have 
like throat cancer, you know, like neck cancer. And it, his throat is where he sings. His lungs were then affected because he had had cancer removed from his lung. After the surgery, it says a physical therapist put him through an unusual workout to build stamina. Prine was required required to run up and down the stairs to his house, grab his guitar while he was still out of breath and sing two songs. That is great. And it says six months later, he was touring again. That oh, wow. Is, that is great. Yeah, he I mean, even in his later years, he he was a lot like Leonard Cohen and that touring into old age. And he mm -hmm. would still do a little dance at the end of a two hour set to the to the uh, adoration of his fans, because this dude just loved it, man. He There was just so much love that came through. I read a great story uh, in his later years. He he wanted to play Paris really bad. It was the one city he'd never played. The French never seemed to take to him for whatever reason. He would go. Same thing with me. Yeah. He, <laughs> he would go visit France. And, and he said he actually seemed to revel in how much they didn't care for him. So when he's plotting this, maybe it was his final tour. He was like, we have to stop in Paris. And they said to him, uh, they came back and they were like, you're going to lose money. Like you, you can't sell any more than like a little club and for us to fly everyone out to Paris. And he wanted to stay in the most expensive hotel that he'd <laughs> romanticized. And he was like, I don't care. He was like, then we'll lose money. He was like, I just want the experience. And they said that the club was sold out and the place absolutely loved him. And he, he was suffering through a hip injury. That, that he had to cancel the rest of his tour because he was in so much pain. But they said that he he, he felt so much love from this uh, uh, crowd in Paris that had never shown him any before that he he played for uh, like nearly three hours. They, they said that uh, towards the end of his career, he started doing like the Springsteen thing and yep. playing 28 song sets. And that's mm. beautiful. Well, look yes. at the juxtaposition. I mean, I mentioned uh, right after I mentioned Leonard Cohen, you told that story. Like Leonard Cohen had the kind of voice for France. It was gruff, um, mm -hmm. slow, uh, philosophical. And John, I mean, come on. I'm, I'm sure it took a long time. But eventually you cotton up to somebody who's been doing the same thing and doing it beautifully. So that that's a wonderful story to hear. And, you know, this his trajectory um it was a slow build and by the by the end of his career and and the horrible end of his life he was adored internationally at a level that he had never contemplated even when he had his first flush of success with uh you know the mainstream records and the MTV videos none of that shit mattered i want to yeah. i want to tell his origin story though because and uh, real quick before you do that cuz i want to hear that um i'm assuming you've seen him live I have never gotten to see John. Oh, Bond you never got to see him live. And now, do you know when horrible. he was live? Did he tour usually solo, or did he? Would he have a band with him? Or he would he always, go through different. He would usually have a band. Certainly in his yeah. later years, he had great musicians. His his son Tommy is now um, a, a touring. That is him. Yeah, I just. It's right. so funny. I had a a promo ad come up for Tommy Prime. Oh, yeah. really? Two minutes before you uh, got here today, yeah, and then had... I was like, "Oh, that's got that's can't be a coincidence, right?" Yeah, it's his kid, and it's a, it, it's wonderful to see. It's it, it's wonderful to see, but I mean, you talk. So he here's here's a part of what made John Prime. He had when he was coming up in the Chicago folk 
scene. He had a good friend named Steve Goodman, who was, I think, a student at either University of Chicago or, or some college in in Chicago. And Goodman and Prine became good friends. They came from different worlds. He, uh, I think, he was from like a sort of upper class uh, Jewish suburban enclave. John, um, working class um, family. I don't think anybody had been to college, but these dudes really took to each other. And then when things started breaking big for John locally, uh, Goodman got there first. He ha- he wrote a couple of hits that were recorded by a lot of big artists. He had a song called City of New Orleans, which is actually about a train that um, – was covered by Willie Nelson, and I think Gordon Lightfoot might have done it, but a bunch of other people. Goodman was starting to be a national name, and he got to open for Chris Christopherson like five nights in a row. And meanwhile, his buddy Prine was playing downtown, and Goodman, the story goes, said to John, I'm going to bring Chris Christopherson around to see you tonight because he likes one of your songs that I've been singing. And John said, sure you will, sure you will. Have a good show opening for Chris. It yeah. wasn't about jealousy. It was about support and thinking, this is my friend just talking bullshit um, who right. wants to make me feel good. So at the end of the last night, for some reason, Paul Anka's there. I think Paul Anka and Chris Christopherson share a manager. It was a crazy time, obviously. <laughs> and the manager approaches Goodman at the end of their last set and says, listen, we're done here. I want to fly you out to New York and sign you, and we're going to get you a showcase in Greenwich Village, and that's going to begin your major label career. And Goodman says, wait, stick around, come see my buddy Prine playing downtown tonight. I know he's still there, even though most of the crowd is gone. And Christofferson says, all right, if you feel that strongly about it. And that is when they took that ride. Everybody had left. They put some chairs back up. So Christofferson and a couple other people could listen to John Prine get on stage at like two in the morning, play a few of his songs, and the rest is history. It, had wow. it not been for that night and it, that move by his buddy Goodman saying, you got to hear my friend, because he was he was more of a fan than a careerist, that guy Goodman. Yeah. And, I, and, and listening to, I mean, not to get too uh, hippie sounding here, but listening to your podcast over the last year, you've had a lot of guests. I get the sense they would make similar moves for friends. because, And this is what I started saying before, like when we're younger and we're making a go at it, and I never really fully made a go at doing music for a living, but there was enough ambition there where I felt like everybody else doing what I'm doing is competition in some way. So I would be unnecessarily snarky and dismissive because I was insecure and I I wasn't yet happy with what I was doing. I didn't yet feel like it was its own justification. And and all of these musicians that you guys have interviewed, I I think almost everybody I've listened to, there's a real sense of um, being fans. Like there's such there's such an overlap between John Prine and Steve Goodman and Taylor Hawkins and the dude and Jarrett from Bowling from Soup and the guy from Toadies, like all these people you've interviewed who 
it's about the love of the music and the discovery of it. And the, the egos are coming, seem to be coming second. Everybody has ambition, but mm -hmm. the egos seem to be taking a back seat to just the joy of creating and supporting the stuff they love. And that John had that in spades at a young age, and it was gifted to him also by his buddy Goodman, which is just a beautiful story to me. That's pretty amazing. I mean, and just to, I mean, to not shut him out of the door, like he could have just gone off to New York and made it big, and he he brought his buddy along. Yeah. His and with this. Oh, go ahead. Okay, what were you gonna say? No, go ahead. Uh, his his wife was after after he died. His his wife was talking about how much he loved the generation coming up. And how much he 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 was blown away uh, that they knew who he was, and he said in an interview that he he liked typing out his lyrics. He would sit down in an old typewriter and type his lyrics out. And one day they get a FedEx package in the mail, and it's from Tom Hanks. And Tom Hanks was like, "Hey, you're one of my favorite singers. I heard you say this in an interview." And it was a vintage typewriter for him to write his lyrics on. That's awesome. And she said that he could not, like, he couldn't have been more tickled that Tom Hanks knew who he was and that he cared enough to, to send a gift. He was such a modest dude. I mean, it, uh, right after Christofferson, quote unquote, found him, Bob Dylan fell in love with, with Prine's music. And he said Dylan was just starting to, you know, read philosophy and the I Ching and get into really deep uh, stuff. And he described John Prine, some, the, the phrase was something like, uh, Proustian, Proustian existentialism in a mind fire from the Midwest. And somebody <laughs> read this to Dylan. Uh, somebody read this to, to John. He said, Proustian exis. I can't even pronounce that, but thank you, Mr. Dylan. <laughs> and that... And that wasn't shtick. That was Ted Lasso. That I was, was just, just literally just going to say that's Ted yeah. Lasso. That yeah. was who yeah. the dude was. And that is why those of us who um, liked his music loved the man. Do, yeah. do you know you know about the first review that he got that, that, <laughs> that started packing out the clubs for him? Framed. Yeah, Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert of uh, Siskel and Ebert. Or was it Ebert and, yeah. Ebert and Siskel? Whatever the fuck. Um Emerson Lake and Sister. <laughs> <laughs> he he Seals was he was a he was a reviewer for the Chicago Sun Times and Roger Ebert walked in and the headline was singing mailman delivers a powerful message in in a few words and really? that based off the strength of that review uh, he started selling out rooms yeah. all over Chicago another happy coincidence which shows like if you keep uh, well not always but if you know, he kept plugging away, doing what he loved, and it just – it was a heady time where – I mean, music had much more of a central place in the culture than it did, yeah. does today, obviously. And so, uh, you know, a folk singer could change somebody's life, and uh, and the news was centralized. And, yeah, for a dude like Ebert to happen upon you, and everybody turned to the section of the paper where they wanted to hear about the, the latest movie – and there Ebert was reviewing some folk singer whose show he had walked into just for the hell of it. And yeah, yeah. that was a, a you know a lucky accident. Wait, and, and now remind me, wait, was Roger 
Ebert a movie reviewer? He and was. Just to do this, or he was do, like, I, I mean, obviously I know that's what he was. Would Rod oh, Ebert I, also review like musicians? He too, didn't. Or I don't think he, so. He I just, don't. Yeah. He just, I, I on don't this know. Column, he was like, screw movies this week. It's just, I'm talking now, about you know what? Ryan. He just happened into the place and yeah. he saw this and it, it shocked yeah, he wrote him about how great it. And he was. just used his platform to be like, I mean, which is, I mean, I how like amazing is that? Singing mailman. Yeah, singing. But uh, by the way, on the uh, th- there was a a documentary that I saw about Roger Ebert, like right yes. before he died, or yeah. might have been right after he died. But it was pretty amazing. Yes. Like, was, yeah. 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 Really, really cool. Um, on the on the converse side of that, one of the most I don't want to say depressing, one of the most heartbreaking songs is the exact opposite of that story. Do you guys know uh, Mr. Tanner from Harry Ch- Harry Chapin's Mr. Tanner? I don't about know about how he's one. like this like cleaner who's like this amazing singer and it's like this whole story he's like this he's a clean he's a cleaner and like he owns a cleaning shop and uh you know like a dry cleaner and he he has this great voice and they're like you should and he writes music or whatever and they're like you should go make it big and like he's gonna do this big thing and people love to hear him sing so he like booked this giant hall and like went out and sang his best and he just didn't do that great and he just got these shit reviews and he just never <laughs> sang again and like it ends and it's like very sweet because it's harry chapin so it's not like funny or anything and it's just, but it's just like basically like late at night you could still hear him from inside the back of his shop still singing to himself but like it was his one big shot and <laughs> he just it, it just didn't go, go and and that's I, yeah and that's how we are, arrive at the at the belief of just don't don't always swing for the fences it, yeah, I, I can analogize it to to the current state of baseball. Learn <laughs> to move the runner over. I found a great somebody was asking him about his time as a mailman, and I mm-hmm. found a really funny quote. So they were asking him, "Why do you think so many postal employees uh, go berserk? Like, why are there so many disgruntled postal?" This must have been back in the nineties. And this makes sense to me. And then it was just so funny at the end. He says, walking the streets as a mailman is kind of like being in a library with no books. You go for hours and hours without seeing somebody. I use that time to make up songs. But if you've got a particular axe to grind, you're out there thinking about it for seven or eight hours. The one thing I never understood was why they seem to go back and take it out on other disgruntled postal employees. though. (laughs) (laughs) It's not that they're doing it, it's just their target. He's mad at I found, wait, this uh, this cracked me up too. Uh, in the same interview, they asked him what would make a great second career. Mm-hmm. And he said, I've always thought that a really good job would be to raise worms, raise warm worms near a fishing place. If you cut a worm in two, you've got two worms. So during a recession, you could double your business. <laughs> and that was not effing around. That was who John Prime Yeah, no, like you could tell he's thought about it. Absolutely. A man of modest means who just uh, comes up. It's like if he was still around today, just walking up. Hello, sharks. Uh, if, if you cut if you cut a worm in half, you get two. I'm looking for a two hundred fifty thousand dollars for 40 percent of my business. I'm looking for a hundred dollar and some worms. <laughs> yeah. Well, he I mean, that is. His outlook and uh, the gifts that he received, the gratitude that he felt for the people who supported him and who appreciated him and who worked with him, that came through. There are lots of little stories um, that people have told over the years of his generosity and his appreciation of of the help from others. And there was just – and his wife, Fiona, was instrumental in that in the last um, 20 years or so of his life. And it's – 
I try to I try to follow. I don't have to consciously try, but I I I treasure what I stumble upon in that in my own songwriting and the making of my own music. I have a guy I work with named Kevin Salem, who I admired in the '90s. He he's my Steve Goodman in that he is so selfless when we work on my material that I and he's so talented. On top of that, I, if if I had if I if ten years ago you had uh, visited me in a time machine and played for me then the kind of music that I've been making with Kevin the last four years, I would have thought, oh, shit's gonna happen. I'm gonna get signed. I'm gonna get a huge budget. I'm gonna get produced by T Bone Burnett or Daniel Lanois or one of these other people I really admire, um, Keltner on drums, and and yet I don't have any of those things. Yet I have this guy in my life, Kevin Salem, who whose guitar playing I admired in the 90s and who I just reached out to on a whim, who is helping me make this fantastic music. And I was telling Ken on the way over here, I'll go a couple weeks without seeing Kevin and he will work on my stuff. And granted, you know, I'm, I'm paying him for it, but way below what he's worth. And, uh, and he just intuits where I need to go with it. And it is such a gift. And even even if I never get a stream, never make a dime from something I create, I still will have created something much better than I thought I could. And yeah. uh, that's a that's a real gift. Prine had a yeah. lot of people like we, that in his life. You know what's crazy is I pay Chip nothing, and I feel like it's still too much. <laughs> it, <laughs> we, we've I got the opposite the thing going on. I bring song lyrics to him on a daily basis. And he, <laughs> He, he literally I, I have to keep making email accounts because he keeps blocking. <laughs> so I, I went I started uh, I went on YouTube today just to listen to some John Prine music. The first song I come across is Sam Stone. Masterful. And I'm you know, I'm like, I'll be honest. I was listening, but I was also reading the book about the Showtime Lakers that that the new HBO show is based on. So I, I just kind of had it, you know, I just had my ear on it. And then a lyric jumped out at me where he says, uh, there's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes. Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose. And I guess the song's about a Vietnam vet who comes back with, with a drug problem. Yes. And that lyric just jumped out, even as I'm reading, uh, you know, about uh, the cocaine orgies at Magic Johnson's house. <laughs> that lyric jumped out at me. And then uh, as I'm reading some interviews, they ask him, what lyric are you most proud of in your career? And he singled that lyric out. And then, really? I, yeah, but then I was like, oh, like, uh, I guess I don't like I just found the best one. I guess there's no. Well, but I did. I, I had him on for for a good chunk of the day. And yeah. um, I, I, I was I, I was really I blown sense. out that I've that I've never delved into this before i because your favorite band is the stones and and having gotten to know the two of you and also your taste in music i can't speak for chip because he's a queter fan and he's a wilco fan so yeah. to be a to be a wilco to be a queter fan a fan of ken queter of philadelphia is to be a fan of insanity and joy mm -hmm. and um that which cannot be explained to be a wilco fan is to love roots music and its possibilities because Wilco um, really, really pushed the envelope. But my sense of your taste, Ken, is that you come at it 
from a musical hook first, lyric second perspective. Like that's what I that's what I sense. You're not going to fall in love with a, a lyric and dive in on first listen. There's got to be a musical hook there. Yeah, 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 for and sure. And I'm more I'm more of I'm more of a lyric based dude. Lyric and melody. Um, like I've I've heard a lot of great music that I I ultimately can't go with because the lyrics are so pedestrian and I'm just not feeling anything. But um, a guy like John Prine, if if you're lyrically based in why you listen to music, if you're if if you listen to music to help expand your worldview or to put to put words to feelings that you might not have been able to articulate previously, you can't do better than a Prine. And there's yeah. just there's so much. There's so such a treasure trove of wit in there. Yeah. Well, uh, listen, before you get out of here, you do have your guitar. I have my guitar. Um, what what do you play us? It's your choice. You play. know, I'd actually rather not hear him play. Uh, you, you guys have been so, uh, thanks for listening to I, no, I don't blame you. It sounds no, better on this. the record. I would love I, I need I need to hear a song. All right. Yeah. So what are you going to? I figured. Hang on. I figured I would do. Um, I don't have to wear these, right? Well, I'm saying. Uh, just give, I'll give me a sound checker to make sure. You're... All right, sure. So I, I figured I'll, I'll do it with them on anyway. I um, figured I would do one of the songs from the EP. So John's favorite, um, John's best. I'm getting rid of these. John's yeah, best duet is uh, with Iris Dement. It's called "In Spite of Ourselves." How's the sound check? La 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 la. So John's best duet is called In Spite of Ourselves. If you were to go to Apple Music or, or Spotify, you'd see millions and millions of streams. Uh, he did it with Iris Dement. It's a beautiful song, which on the surface is very corny, like a, a lot of his stuff. But when you listen to it and you understand the emotions that are being expressed and the depth of the relationship, it's really quite moving. So when I was in my phase of wanting to write JP songs, I had found a photo of my wife when she was six and it was really freaking cute. And at the same period of time, my wife and our 15 year old daughter were watching a lot of TV with like teenage shows where they're, they're free, they're, they're binge watching it, streaming it. So they're pausing it. And then they're fighting over which boys are the cutest. And these boys are like 18 and 19. And I said to my wife, you realize if I were doing this with a son, which we don't have or whoever, over a 19 year old girl, you would say, I'm disgusting. She said, yes, right. it's a double yeah. standard, but whatever. And so I started <laughs> calling her Cougar Jenny, um, even <laughs> though she happens to be uh, younger than I am. But I thought of the concept when I found this little photo of her, what if she at six met me when I was three? And the concept was sort of a prequel to In Spite of Ourselves oh, by uh, John Prine and Iris DeMent. So this is called Cougar Jenny. It was a scandal, all I could handle. Jennifer was twice my age. She was six and I was three. Baloney and romper room were all the rage. Somebody found a basket full of kittens by the woods at Bicentennial Park. Hold my juice box, gotta check this out. That's where I got my first kiss on a lark. Hugs and kisses, 
hits and misses gonna make that girl my missus cougar jenny i walked the line my love for you was right on time and she said How I spent my summer vacation by Jenny Lynn in second grade. I gave some little bride a kiss. He followed me around, so then we played. I played the mommy, he played the dog. His bark was really sad. I guess I should have never made him fetch that stick. His mom was looking kind of mad With hugs and kisses, hits and misses A tetanus shot, is that what this is? Little boy, you must not whine My love for you will come in time Ready for me to shred? <laughs> yeah. Woo! Wrong chord. Well, she became a rebel, colored way outside the lines. And he ate crayons till it made me scream at the nurse's office. He did hard time. Though that was 20 years ago, and the rest is history. Cougar Jenny, I thank you, dear. For unraveling the mystery Now you still follow me around Like I got something that you claim And when this kid hears what we did He'll know where to chase the blame On hugs and kisses, hits and misses Let's show them all what wedded bliss is Cougar Jenny, you're so fine My love for you was right on time I guess you're gonna fall in line My love for you was right on time Yeah. Thank you, boys. Thank well you. Done. The well done. Well done. That was great. <laughs> Where can people find the album? That's great. Oh, everywhere. Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Dear iTunes, John, I'm gonna I'm just gonna say one thing real quick because I didn't want to forget this. Um, and then and then we're gonna we'll we'll let everybody out of here. Here's how I mean I know I just kind of started listening today. I'm I'm a bit of a bandwagon fan, but here's how good I found John Prine. The other day, I forget who I was talking about it with. Stevie Wonder came up and I was talking about how I just called to say I love you. Might be the worst, not just his worst song, but maybe one of the worst songs on the planet. Well, we know like Jack a, Black felt that way in High Fidelity, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's how I feel when I hear that yes. song. I feel High Fidelity Jack Black right. raging up inside of me. Right. It sounds like a wedding band put it together. So today, <laughs> as I'm searching through John Prine songs, I see him doing a cover of I Just Called to Say I Love You. No. And I'm like, first off, I'm like, you got Stevie Wonder is one of the most fucking brilliant artists who ever lived. You have this entire catalog and this is the song you go with. 
and I listened to it and without the cheesy uh, synths and the wedding yep. band vibe, and it's just a dude on guitar. Um, fuck, it's a sweet song. I was I was listening to the lyrics. <laughs> I was listening to how he did it. And I was like, oh, that's a really sweet love song. Think of the song uh, I Love You by Lou Reed and imagine Stevie Wonder doing that song in the 80s. It would have been just as cheesy as yeah. I just called to yeah. say I yeah. love you. But we it's just, just as good a song. For that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So that's it, Eric. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Thank you man. for coming in. Great. That was great. Was so much fun. Yeah. Thank you, boys, for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. And um, we'll see you next week. Yeah. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye.